Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Lilith was the first woman created alongside Adam as his equal before she quarreled with him and flew away, leaving Adam to ask God for a second wife, Eve. Belief in Lilith is based in part on Midrash, or commentary on the gaps and seeming contradictions in the Bible, or the Pentateuch, or the Torah. Genesis says that the first man and woman are created together as equals. And then, in the story of Eden, it says that God created Eve after Adam by forming her from his rib. Midrash resolves this contradiction by arguing that these are two different women, and the first one created with Adam was Lilith. Her legend also stems from stories of ancient demons, shaping contradictions in and around Lilith herself. In our episode on the Jinn, we discussed the possibility that Lilith was the mother of that race of non-corporeal beings, and in our episode on sex demons, we wondered whether Lilith might be the original succubus. Jewish tradition has long held that Lilith was responsible for childhood illnesses like diphtheria, but the Zohar also associated her with nocturnal emissions and nightmares. That's wet dreams, kids. In the 20th century, she had come to be regarded as a feminist icon and even a goddess in neo-pagan circles. The mystery of the Lilith story is how she could be human and demon, natural and supernatural, devil and goddess. Today, we give Lilith her due with a full episode about how her legend has developed over time from the medieval alphabet of Ben Sirah to Gerald Gardner on Doreen Valiente's Wiccan worship to HBO's True Blood, in which she's hailed as the mother of vampires. Who is Lilith? We find out today on Occult Confessions. Well, it is Halloween time here at Occult Confessions, and I'm going to make a confession here. Our Halloween interactive experience that we are now in our second year of developing is based around a character who never arrives, and that character I I have named after Lilith. Uh, She's Madame Lily this year, who's running a carnival. Last year she was uh, corporate CEO uh, Lilith, and uh, next year I've already got plans for for Lilith. So I am a (laughs) Lilith super fan. I I am obsessed with Lilith, the lore and legends of Lilith, and uh, I have been delighted, which you'll discover today, uh, that that it's a pivotal part of her, her legend happens in the 19th century, right around a period that I study a lot in occultism. At laugh, there is Savannah Verrett. She is our sister of the 84th degree. Hello. And my... Uh, and strange writer. She's just, I know you're going to say that, but I was going to say you, you're my partner in creating these oh, interactive Halloween adventures. That's true. So you are an, a Lilith fan by extension. I am. I, um, <laughs> you know, grew up in a household that didn't believe in religion in the slightest, so I just thought the name sounded cool. <laughs> but then the whole you, you're, you're, oh, you're, but the feminist angle yeah, yeah it's fucking is, awesome yeah. she sounds pretty rad she I'd was like created to be the mother Adam's of vampires. Yeah, yeah that's awesome and, and you would like course, to be a mother yeah I mean <laughs> would you I mean 
It doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world. They're always so broody and mopey about being vampires, though. Like, can you imagine all your kids being that emo all the time? No, actually. Okay, you talk me out of wanting to be the mother (laughs) of vampires. I would be the one not broody vampire, though. Oh, okay. I think. Speaking of not broody vampires, Boxy Olsen is here. Hello. Call her Boxy on the show? Well, Evangeline. (laughs) Uh, That's what we call her because she really likes boxes. Uh, Evangeline is here to discuss Lilith as well. Evangeline is now in her second year acting in our Halloween adventure and uh, knows Lilith fairly well from that undertaking. Is that Um. fair to say? Yeah, yeah. But you're going to learn more things. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're also, you religiously listen to the show, so. I do. You have heard all of our Lilith lore up to this point. Oh, yes. And I've heard you personally talk about Lilith. Yeah, can't get enough of that Lilith. (laughs) Uh, Also sitting over there is uh, Neil Sigmund. He is going to be doing our voices today. Neil? Uh, Greetings. Uh, I called confessors. Greetings. (laughs) Happy October. (laughs) Happy October. All right, Savannah, let's pledge it out, and then we'll get to that order of confessors. We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, I'm going to start with Evangeline. You make the noise getting us into this. It always has that quality to it these days. There's a lot of celebratory bars i think i think it's fun i think it's worth celebrating the order of confessors let us celebrate our confessors today and we've got a big list of patrons that we'd like to welcome grace and breathe the fire jessica t spencer m michael t dallin m chris r anthony t ross m rob b steve mimir and madeleine b oh Welcome. What a delight. Couple of reviews to acknowledge. Big Mike listens all day while building custom furniture from trees that he cuts down himself. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, that is <laughs> badass. We love you, Big Mike. <laughs> uh, and Tough Toast just says, love it. With a name like Tough Toast, I was a little <laughs> worried when I saw the review, but then the toast was not so tough for us. Aww. Thank you, Tough I mean- Toast. If toast does get, like, bread becomes tough when you toast it, right? Like, in a way, if you toast it <laughs> long enough, it becomes tough. Yeah. It technically will soften if it's stale, but that's that's another topic. <laughs> that's a separate it's episode. It's not stale toast, it's tough toast. <laughs> Let's go ahead and close it up, Savannah. Blech. <laughs> you wanted it not celebratory. There you go. All right. I don't know that I didn't want it to be celebratory, <laughs> but I guess we can be sad that we have stopped talking yeah, about our patrons sad. who are wonderful people, and we are so grateful to have you. All right. We got to get on with Lilith, though. I've got a lot to do today, friends. This is a big episode. Lilith isn't named in Genesis. Why? Given Eve's explicit role in the garden, would anyone dream up a second woman for Adam? The problem rests in an inconsistency, as I said, in the text of Genesis. Genesis 1 describes God creating the first man and woman together. Let's get a little of that good Genesis action. Can you do this in the voice of Phil Collins? No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Like Tarzan Follow Phil Collins? <laughs> Yeah, he's the lead singer of the second iteration of Genesis, anyway. Go ahead. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, 
in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. A little sexy twinge there on be fruitful. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's only he's reading between the lines. Well, yeah, Neil's yeah, good yeah. at that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, also, um, I don't feel like I have a lot of control over the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. Hmm. So, well, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have had that original sin then, Savannah. Oh shit! Good point. But uh, the point I want to make here, the reason that we're going through this, yeah, I, I know in the introduction I laid this out, but there there are more complications than than just the fact that God created male and female. There is no temporal gap between the male and female in this passage. Temporal? When, well, like in time. Oh, no time oh. passes. God mm-hmm. creates them male and female. It's not God creates a man, waits a little while. Eventually the man gets lonely. He pulls out a rib and then he creates a woman. <laughs> God creates them male and female. God creates male and female together, blesses them together, gives them dominion over the beasts of the sea, air, and earth. The second book focusing on the creation of Adam and then Eve, tells a different story. It directly contradicts this. God creates Adam on a barren earth, then plants the garden. God notices that Adam is alone, then creates the fish, birds, and ground-dwelling creatures after Adam to keep him company. In the second book, Adam named all the animals, didn't find any of them especially fit partners, and so then God created Eve, forming her from the man's rib. So do you see that what Neil just read says God creates them male and female, then God creates all that other stuff. Yeah. But if we look at the Adam story, God creates Adam, creates all that other stuff, then creates the female. And but- these both are law. So it has to be... These are law. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I yeah. Follow religion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but like, we, I mean, we, we, this show, we're known for digging into religious texts, and particularly the Bible and finding the contradictions. This is one that's baked right into the beginning. Okay. You can just say that, you know, the, the initial paragraph didn't mean what it was saying, but it's hard to not read it as if the man and woman exist and then God puts all these other things and on And then earth. that's why people came up with Lilith. Because it, they're, it's the, well, it's how the Jews tried to make sense of there being this discrepancy oh, okay. in the Pentateuch. This chronology and the question of the woman's creation are a direct contradiction, as we're saying, to the first book in which God fills the sea, earth, and sky with animals on the fifth and sixth day and gets around to creating the man and woman at the end of the sixth day, or at least after the land animals. The question of Adam searching for a friend is not a problem in the previous book because Adam comes complete with a female partner, and both Adam and his partner are given dominion over the beasts, as opposed to the second book's contention that it was Adam alone. Furthermore, the woman in the second book is designated to be Adam's helper, suggesting a hierarchy that doesn't exist in the first book. Male and female, he created them. Not male, he created them, and then he created females to help the men. Mm-hmm. Do you see? Yes. 
Students of the ancient text in the first centuries of its circulation puzzled over this contradiction and concluded that the only way to reconcile the first and second books of Genesis was to make Eve Adam's second wife. So began the tradition that the woman in book one, created alongside the man as his equal, was not Eve but Lilith. The word Lilith only appears once in the Hebrew Bible, and that is in Isaiah. So there actually is the word Lilith Mm. in the Hebrew Bible. In Isaiah's... Do you know, Boxy? No. Oh, this is news to you. This is news to me. You are learning. In Isaiah's judgment on the nations, the author describes what will become Edom after God smites the city with his sword. Isaiah? For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of vindication by Zion's cause, and the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soul into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the hedgehog shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall live it. They shall name it no kingdom there. In all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. Wildcats shall meet with hyenas. Goat demons shall call to each other. There too Lilith shall repose and find a place to rest. Yeah. That was a lot. Yeah, I was from Trenton, and sometimes we called that place No Kingdom there. Oh. <laughs> the one thing that really stuck out to me was, it did, did it say Hulk and Hedgehog at one point? Hawks, hedgehogs. There's... Hawk. Oh, I heard the word Hulk, Hulk like oh, the Incredible yeah, Hulk. Yeah, I, I... Oh, no, 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 it's fine. Okay. It's fine because we got this bit now, so it works. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's hawks and hedgehogs and ostriches. Wow. Yeah, wherever you see an ostrich, you know nothing good's happening there. Oh. Uh, I yeah, mean, I mean, they're pretty brutal. Yeah. I wouldn't fuck with one. Nope. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's why Lilith rests here. So, so he... she rests with ostriches. With ostriches, also <laughs> owls, hyenas, and goat demons. Here, Lilith is not a human woman, but a demon, right? Because mm-hmm. she's in context of goat demons. You never heard this before, Evangeline? <laughs> I actually, I think I have heard of it, but I don't know. I haven't really researched it. Yeah, well, here we go. She's in I'm, league yeah. with the ostriches. She's a demon. Yeah, she must be. I didn't be. know the ostriches. Oh, you are. Oh, Wait, oh who's in league with the ostriches, Evangeline Lilith. or Lilith? Oh, yeah, that makes more sense. I thought you thought Evangeline <laughs> was in league with the ostriches and she was covering up the Lilith connection. I mean, I might be. How the do f- you know? The 5th century Latin text translates the Hebrew Lilith, L-I-L-I-T, as Lamia. So this is a translation question, too. So it's oh. possible you've read Bibles. <laughs> You're always reading different Bibles. Every time I see you, you've got a different Bible. Um, but it could be that you've read a Bible that doesn't have, I'm teasing you, a different, that's absolutely not true. Just generally reading like, I don't know, the Necronomicon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it could be that you've read a version that doesn't include the word Lilith. We could translate the Latin text as, like the Latin text as Lamia. So Lilith does not appear in the 5th century Latin text. It says Lamia instead. There too, Lamia shall repose. Um 
The first Lamia was the daughter of Poseidon, seduced by Zeus and cursed by a jealous Hera, such that she either killed her own children, they died of supernatural means, or Hera stole them away. We get into this on our Succubus yeah, episode. Hera. Oh, come on, Hera. Interesting. Lamia was tortured by the sight of other women with their children and unable to sleep, a side effect of Hera's curse. She began stealing infants away from their mothers and devouring them in a cave. The horror of this cannibalistic infanticide transformed Lamia into a monster generally depicted as a kind of mermaid with the tail of a snake instead of a fish. It sounds kind of like um, La Lorena, the crying woman. Oh, La, La Llorona. That's it. What is that? La Llorona. It's, it's a Mexican, Latin American uh, legend of a woman who cries out for her children. Oh. Right? And drowns yeah. other people's children because she oh. can't have her own or something like that. Interesting. So pitying Lamia, Zeus gave her the ability, because he had sex with her and caused the whole problem in the first place. Uh, he gave her the ability to remove her eyes in the daylight so that she didn't have to witness the sight of wow. mothers and children. <laughs> Zeus, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate it so much. <laughs> a real leg up, man. Yeah. Uh, but now know, she's Sleeping with to... you was totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> now she doesn't have to look at mothers and children. Uh, which drives her to a murderous rage. Uh, it also who could blame her is so that she could sleep. Who could fucking blame her? Oh, right. you know what? <laughs> That's also a good. That is worth it. That does help. Yeah, that does help. Uh, but the fact that she only came out at night lent greater terror to her legend. The Lamia has clear ties to the lion-headed Akkadian and Sumerian demon Lamasthu, uh, who attacked women in childbirth or stole children away while they were bre- breastfeeding. Uh, but the Isaiah translations list both Lilith and Lamia with a lowercase l, suggesting a class of demons rather than a specific individual. Mm. So it's not one Lilith, but the Liliths. Okay. Subsequent translations follow this pluralization of the Lilith, but render her as a natural rather than a supernatural beast. The King James Version, my personal favorite, although it's not always the most accurate, substitutes screech owls which is a bit strange <laughs> given that owls are already merited uh, mentioned in, in isaiah's list that is so weird heard about hawks and aren't owls. screech owls really tiny yeah they're the they little guys yeah so i love owls king james is is off i'm there. wondering if like i just part of my more demonic nature I, f- I feel like i'm constantly finding myself leaning more towards like demonic shit and i love owls and i've always loved owls i guess i'm letting this the, the mask slip a little bit. Well, we really did have like a listener birds. on Instagram who sent us a whole bunch of messages about how owls are demons, and now we should like cover that or figure that out. Oh, wait, I'm down. Why? I have an owl tattoo. Why owls? I, they just I because mean, they it, can turn their heads 360 degrees. Twin Peaks. The owl is generally not a positive symbol when you see an owl on Twin Peaks. So maybe they'd watched a lot of David Lynch, but they thought Blavatsky had things to say about owls and. Uh, Interesting. I think they're pretty. I, and love I have owls. one tattooed on my shoulder. Um. <laughs> I mean, I guess they're, they're like that terrifying creature in the night who swoops down and like. So maybe, I mean, I'm really like I'm practically L. Ron Hubbard saying this, but maybe like our inner mammalian like m- mouse brain <laughs> has, has maintained the horror of owls. Well, I have advanced passive mouse yeah. brain. <laughs> I like them. I love them. Um, so the New International Version, which maybe is the one you're most familiar with, Evangeline, settles on a generalization. It does not say Lilith. It says night creature. Oh. I've never heard that before. Lilith, L-I-L-I-T, I think is probably closest to what it actually means to say. But what is a Lilith? 
Whether this fragment of Isaiah suggests a long-standing belief in Lilith as a demon, as suggested by the New Revised Standard Version's reference to goat demons just before Lilith, right? We have owls and ostriches, and then goat demons. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's like naming different kinds of horses. There's the Arabian and the Clydesdale and the unicorn. (laughs) The centaur. (laughs) The centaur. Ah, yes. Um... or, a col- or it's a collection of unclean animals, in which case the satyrs or goat demons are merely goats, is up to interpretation. So we can either regard Lilith as a perfectly natural, unclean animal, like a hawk, an owl, or an ostrich, or she could be supernatural, like a goat demon, an actual satyr. Hmm. What does it mean to be unclean, though, for an animal? Uh, well, you know, you're... Owls are pretty clean. You're too Christian for your own good. From from a religious standpoint, the unclean animal is an animal that would be forbidden to eat or interact with. Oh. Yeah. More Jewish concept. Oh, I see. Mm. Yeah. The Dead Sea Scrolls also reference Lilith in the Songs of the Sage in the Great Isaiah Scroll and supports a demonic hypothesis. The text dates to roughly the first century BCE and only exists in fragments. It describes a world filled with evil angels ruled by Belial. The reference to Lilith is in the context of an exorcism intended to frighten and terrify, along with Lilith, the destroying angels and spirits of bastards, demons, howlers, and desert dwellers. Wait, did you say she's... she's banishing them it's an exorcism of lilith yet to get her away from you or oh yeah, you're being oh, tormented she isn't the one yeah, okay i'm you're sorry being tormented by lilith and demons and bastards and also people who live in the desert they're all tormenting you there's <laughs> one <laughs> god damn it i'm tired of sand being everywhere in my house <laughs> <laughs> these desert dwellers just won't leave me alone <laughs> the camels won't shut up it's so loud outside get out of here <laughs> That is so weird. What? I bet your mother didn't marry your father either. Huh? This oh, is bastards, oh, bastards. and desert dwellers. <laughs> These bastard desert dwellers with their sand. <laughs> but is Lilith human or is she a demon? That's the question we're trying to address now. The Alphabet of Ben Sirah, a medieval Jewish text that was written between the 8th and 11th century CE, argues that she was actually both. The text starts with a collection of Aramaic proverbs, tells the story of how awesome the author Ben Sirah was, and describes how Ben Sirah counseled King Nebuchadnezzar with stories including the story of Lilith. The legend of Lilith is generally accepted as a true telling of Jewish belief, despite the fact that the alphabet also contains a whole satirical section mocking the ancient kings and even the Old Testament god himself. So the alphabet is a major source, is what I'm trying to say, of Lilith lore. But it is a complicated document because hmm. although we take the Lilith lore on its face and say, yes, Jewish people believed this, it also mocks Yahweh, which would not have been standard Jewish practice in uh-huh. the medieval period. Oh, yeah. In two passages, the text encompasses the dominant narrative concerning Lilith from ancient culture to the present day. Ben? When God created the first man, Adam, alone, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. God created a woman for him, from the earth like him, and called her Lilith. They promptly began to argue with each other. She said, I will not lie below. And he said, I will not lie below, but above, since you are fit for being below, and I for being above. She said to him, the two of us are equal, since we are both from the earth. 
and they would not listen to each other. Since Lilith saw, she uttered God's ineffable name and flew away into the air. Adam stood in prayer before his maker and said, Master of the universe, the woman you gave me fled from me. Imagine that, Adam. <laughs> he goes whining to daddy. Like, right. Oh, Just like... wouldn't let her be on top. You can take turns. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't you do both? Yeah, right. I hear that. <laughs> Sorry. I, I'm like, why are we stopping? Like, we are because gonna... like, I'm like on the verge of, of like giving personal details that nobody needs to know. No, about. no, no. The Don't Holy Blessed that. One <laughs> immediately dispatched the three angels, Senoi, Sansanoi, and Samangelov. What? <laughs> Sorry. That is, again, Senoi, Sansanoi, and Samangelov dispense these angels to go get Lilith. So Lilith utters God's ineffable name, which is like a magical incantation. To okay. say God's secret name is to give you a magical ability, and she pops off. Oh, cool. So God runs and grabs these three angels, and he's like, can oh. you go find her for me? But does, I thought he was supposed to know everything. Why didn't he know where she <laughs> I went? I figured she would say that. Um, <laughs> he did, but he just didn't feel like doing it himself. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so um, God said, if she wants to return, well and good. And if not, she must accept. That- well and good. <laughs> Fine. Great. If not, she must accept that a hundred of her children will die every day. Oh, how does she have a hundred children yeah. to yeah. die every day? Yeah, that's a lot of children. That is. The angels pursued her and overtook her in the sea in raging waters, the same waters in which the Egyptians would one day drown, and told her God's orders. And yet she did not want to return. They told her they would drown her in the sea. And she replied, leave me alone. I was only created in order to second babies. If they are boys from birth to day eight, I will have power over them. If they are girls from birth to day 20. A weird response. What? what? Can you say that again? Yeah. They what? They said, we will drown you in the sea. And uh-huh. she said, leave me alone. I was only created in order to sicken babies, etc. And she describes an elaborate formula for how often she will sicken babies. Boys to age eight, girls, uh, day eight, girls to day 20. So the first eight days of an infant boy's life, the first 20 days of an infant girl's life, Lilla says she was created to haunt and otherwise torment these babies. What? Why? When they heard her reply, the angels pleaded with her to come back. She swore to them, in the name of the living God, that whenever she would see them, or their names, or their images, or an amulet, she would not overpower that baby, and she accepted that a hundred of her children would die every day. Therefore, a hundred of the demons die every day, and therefore, we write the names of the three angels on amulets of young children. When Lilith sees them, she remembers her oath, and the child is protected and healed." So this is all very weird, right? Yeah. yeah. Extremely weird segment of text. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will drown you. Well, I am here to sicken babies. <laughs> to sicken them. Sicken them. Okay. Yes. Well, he got me there, said the angels. I don't... <laughs> yeah, and they're like, well, come back. Come <laughs> yeah, back to the garden. That is neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> you have changed the subject on me. <laughs> back to the drowning. <laughs> To a modern reader, as we're saying, this segment of text is full of narrative quirks and inconsistencies. Lilith uses the power of God to escape Adam, and yet when she refuses to acquiesce to God's command that she return to Adam, God does not threaten to take that power away. In fact, this human woman who was only able to fly away through her knowledge of God's secret name suddenly has a whole collection of supernatural powers. In contrast to a human woman, she is able to give birth to many babies in a day, more than a hundred. (laughs) 
presumably, <laughs> since a hundred die every day. Um, also, these infants birthed of a human woman are demons. This is all just like in the text. Hmm. How these infants are conceived and in such remarkable numbers is a question the alphabet fails to address. And so it maintains Lilith in an uncertain space somewhere between human and demon. Okay. Another important element of Lilith lore, alluded to in Isaiah, returns to the alphabet. Hearkening to the tradition of the Lamia, Lilith says, abandoning anything like conversational verisimilitude, I will drown you. I will sicken babies. That she was only created in order to sicken babies. This does not appear to be the case at the outset of the story, but the details she provides about the lengths of time a Jewish mother should shield her babies with the names of the three angels reveals that this is just a way of shoehorning more folklore into the text and a pretty ham-fisted way of doing it. Yeah, I don't know why she would believe that that's what she was created for. You have to imagine, like, the author of Ben Sirah is just sitting there, and he's like, okay, these are all my Lilith facts, <laughs> and I... I got to get all these in to this paragraph. So uh, the angels are like, I will drown you. And she's like, this is the lore involving me and babies. Mm. It's a complete non sequitur, but the story within a story uh, surfaces in the alphabet as a response to Nebuchadnezzar. So let us remember, this is Ben Zerah telling a story to Nebuchadnezzar. It's sort of like the thousand and one nights where Scheherazade is telling the king mm-hmm. stories. Uh, or whatever, like the freaking Canterbury Tales. It's all these different things, right? Mm-hmm. It's got that meta text thing going on. The story within a story surfaces in the alphabet as a response to Nebuchadnezzar asking about the names of the angels Ben Sirah has inscribed on an amulet. Those names being Sanoi, Sansanoi, and Samanjalof. In this way, the alphabet attempts to capture all the lore surrounding Lilith, or at least what the average person should know in a couple of passages. Sometimes, as Ben Sirah tells the king, the angels named would be listed on an amulet used to protect birthing mothers and infant children. Sanoi is sometimes regarded as an angel of healing. But some scholars believe the repetition of the S, which appears in other similar listings of angels, intentionally created a whispering sound that felt as though it was warding off evil in its pronunciation. Might have just been something you uttered to feel like you were warding off evil forces. That sounds like a snake. Apparently, demons oh. don't like them, except for do, that though. one. In yeah, the party. Except, for <laughs> except for one. Human hey. women like them. Ah, uh, yes. I mean, snakes are pretty cool. Snakes right. get a bad rap. You, yeah, you both are snake people. Snakes and owls. I don't think they may be enemies. Snakes and owls? <laughs> it doesn't seem like they would get along. One is in the sky. <laughs> one is on the ground. What is there to fight I don't about? Know. Well, like eagles <laughs> will swoop down right and pick up a snake. They- I mean, sure. Owls gotta eat. Snakes gotta eat. Yeah, they eat. They both eat. They both eat mice. Yeah. Yeah, All right. So that maybe they're on the same team. (laughs) Equal ground. Lilith's association uh, with demons and infanticide contrasts her with Eve, the mother of humanity. There appears to be a simple and straightforward distinction in the lore, except that, as scholar Wojciech Kosior points out, there isn't. The Genesis Rabbah relates that Eve was also a mother of demons. What? Yep. Hold on. I'm so confused. <laughs> They're just women they can't exist ever without being mothers of demons. Right. You guys just can't stop mothering demons. I'm always saying that. 
That's a lot of demon babies. It's fun though. It is fun to have a bunch of demon babies. Around. Now you're just you're just feeding the legend. I'll feel. I'll fucking feed it then. <laughs> if they're gonna make me a demon mother, then fuck it. That's what I am. If you're tell gonna be a mother, might as well be a demon mother. Tell me about Rabbi Simon, please, Neil. For Rabbi Simon said, throughout the entire 130 years during which Adam held aloof from Eve and male demons were made ardent by her and she bore. While the female demons were inflamed by Adam and they bore, as it is written, if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the afflictions of children of men. Adam, which means the children of the first man. This tradition is based on the notion that Adam would not have sex with Eve for 130 years after their son Cain killed their son Abel. Oh. Bear in mind, okay, Adam and Eve are supposed to have lived for 900 years plus. Oh. So for 130 years, they had no sex after Cain killed Abel. Wow. Yeah, because they were sad about it. <laughs> they didn't want any more <laughs> child killings happening. Yep. Okay. Um. But during that 130 years, says this tradition, Eve bore children by the demons and those children were demons. But Adam so also fathered So they weren't having sex demons. with each other, but they were having sex with, with demons? With demons, yeah. Oh. That sounds worse. Wait, so how old were they until... 130. Oh, jeez. 131. So they had children late, like actual children with each other. I mean, they're going to live to 900 years, Boxy, so I don't really know how to say when is late. Yeah, that feels like appropriate amount of time. Yeah, they're Wait. like 13. <laughs> Give or take. Well, I didn't know how sort of old young, they really. They <laughs> got plenty of time to get around to kids at thirteen. They were thirteen years old. Well, like they... you figured, they lived to nine hundred, one hundred thirty years, sort of like being thirteen. Oh. I guess I yeah. didn't realize that they were that old in the first place. Yeah, that's that's significant lore, man. Well, I don't know the lore. Apparently, <laughs> now you do. Uh, so what were we talking about? Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> is it Eve or Lilith who is the mother of demons? Okay. While Lilith is exclusively a mother of demons, Eve is both a mother of demons and a mother of humans. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's better to be Eve than Lilith. Lilith, after all, is only guilty of refusing to submit to her husband. Eve is guilty, at least in part, of leading all humankind into original sin. <laughs> Who would you want to be? Wait, I have a question, though. Yes. Um, if, if Eve is birthing demons, they would be half human, right? Half human, half demon. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're like, is that, is the correct term nep Nephilim? Oh, not necessarily. No? It's conceivable. I, that's what I've heard, but I don't know. Well, the word Nephilim is an uncertain term. So what exactly it refers to, it varies it's substantially. Varies, yeah. Like yes. Lilith. Correct. Yeah. That's how it gets an episode. There we go. Right. But for <laughs> Enoch, the Nephilim were conceivably giants who were the children of human women and fallen angels. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to clarify. That is one way of thinking about one it. One way. Yeah. I mean, there's multiple ways to think of all of this. Because so. we don't know what the Nephilim are. Yeah. 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 Um, what were we talking about? Uh, <laughs> who would you uh, rather be? Who would you rather be? Would you have an answer now, Savannah? 
Oh, I mean, absolutely Lilith. Yeah, you got to go with Lilith. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, you just honestly, Eve was looking for a way out, too. That's why she ate the <laughs> yeah, apple. Yeah, but she so. went the long way. Yeah, no, that, yeah. She took the hard road. She did. I don't know, though. Would you want to be Lilith if you've had, like, having more than 100 children a day? That sounds like a lot of work. I, I honestly don't buy that that's happening. So. <laughs> <laughs> I reject that part of the Lilith. <laughs> Not canon. Yeah, it's not in my head canon for Lilith. So <laughs> fair, fair. Further confusing them is the commentary of the Jewish mystical Zohar, which argues that Lilith came to Adam during his 130-year separation from Eve and bore children by him. With Lilith? Yes, because remember he, he came was crawling back. Well, something somebody crawled. Yeah, I, I'm going to imagine that Lilith still needed to be on top. So yeah, I think Adam came yeah. around to yeah. that. It yeah, it was definitely was Adam. Say. It was not Lilith. What in the hell? Eve and Lilith are not as distinct as they might seem. Except that, well, I mean, here we are, right? If they're both having sex with Adam. Right. That just makes every woman the same. <laughs> Whoever has sex with Adam. <laughs> no. The problem here is that Eve maintained her humanity in a fundamental way in the lore that Lilith didn't or didn't seem to in the alphabet of Ben Sirah. Lilith began as a human, became a kind of a magician when she uttered God's name and flew away, and then became something non-human or superhuman. Lilith was endowed with the ability to birth hundreds of demons in a day, afflict children the world over throughout time, and apparently far outlive Adam and Eve. We have to remember, the amulets are used to ward her off today. So she's still got to be around. There is a dissonance between the human Lilith and the non-human afflicting demon Lilith. As human, Lilith is composed of different stuff, namely material stuff, unlike a demon, which is a non-physical thing or of pure spirit. The Zohar further points this contradiction when it labels Lilith the female counterpart of Lucifer, the body to Lucifer's spirit. This is very common when we think about Earth Mother and God the Father. God the Father exists in the air and is pure spirit. Earth the Mother is is the material world and okay. the combination of them is humanity. Hmm. But this is Lucifer and Lilith. Lilith is the body and Lucifer is the immaterial flame. Okay. Oh, I see. You I got see. me? I ship it. Yeah. <laughs> you ship it. <laughs> so is she with Adam? Is she with Lucifer? Is she with non-unnamed demons? She can be with I, whoever yeah. she wants Popping to be. Popping out a hundred demon eggs. I don't eggs. think yeah. she has a, a one one man. Yeah. I think it's like any anybody. Could be so many men's. So many men's. What about women too? You could know? be some women's. It could be. <laughs> could be some women's. All right, so we're going to change gears here. <laughs> going to jump forward. So that's all your ancient lore around Lilith, getting from the beginning to medieval period. That lore is not nearly as fun as I have been made out to believe. What did you think? What were you missing? I don't know. That she's some badass bitch, and then like we're she getting just, there. Okay, that's what I want. <laughs> that's not the modern... that she's being forced to have a million babies every day. And... <laughs> 100. 101. Uh, yeah, because 100 have to die. Right. <laughs> Instead of 101 Dalmatians, it's a 101 demon babies. Yep. <laughs> In the late 19th century, Lilith made a fairly remarkable return to cultural consciousness in two distinct ways. So let's bear in mind, she's just this element of Jewish lore for a millennium plus. Hmm. And then we get to like 1875 and suddenly she pops up in two books. First was a fictional Christian existentialist work written by a guy named George MacDonald. 
Second was non-fictional occult writing, well, the non-fictional occult writing of sex reformer Ida Craddock, who we've talked about on the show. Both writers tried in different ways to revive the image of Lilith. In his novel, Lilith, colon, a romance, which is a very restrained title for the 19th century. Thank you, George MacDonald. Although I do love long titles. Lilith, a romance. You do love long titles. I love them. So I'm almost amazed. Uh, But this was the late 19th century, so the titles had started to shrink. Uh, This text was printed first in 1895. Sorry. So it's the 1890s, just about the turn of the century. MacDonald created a whole separate universe for Lilith to rule over. MacDonald is often credited with inventing fantasy fiction. Did you know this? No. And his influence on notable authors for children and adults is very clear if you've read, if you read any of him. Cool. Um, the theme of stepping into another world is central, for example, to Lewis Carroll's Alice stories, J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, L. Frank Baum's Oz Adventures, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and J.R.R. Tolkien, mm-hmm. among many others who also name-checked MacDonald as an inspiration of theirs. So mm-hmm. Lilith has this other world that we can step into. In addition to being a pioneering fantasy writer, MacDonald was a Congregationalist minister, but his Christianity was not suffocating in the way it informed his writing, in my opinion. MacDonald is often aligned with the Christian existentialists, giving his work a philosophical depth that strayed far enough from doctrine to allow his readers room for spiritual roaming in his work. I say this as a person who read his book and liked it and found it like spiritually... um, uh, like it, 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 there was space for me in there, and there is not generally space for me in like a congregationalist church. Mm. Uh, but there is, I think, in the way he writes about things. I love Christian existentialism too. I'm a big fan. Like Alice, MacDonald's narrator, Mr. Vane, finds his way into Lilith's universe by stepping through a mirror, drawn through the portal by an animal. In this case, a raven who calls himself simply Mr. Raven, right? Lewis Carroll, Alice follows. I was about to say this sounds just rabbit. like Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, I mean, it's like te- oh, I mean, yeah. we follow the rabbit down the rabbit hole in one Alice story, and another Alice story, she steps through, through the, the mirror, but glass. Yeah. sort of like combine them in McDonald. Um, Vane's name is Dickensian, but not in the sense that he is vain. Rather, he's inclined to do things in vain and is blown around by the other characters in the story, sort of like a weather vane. This is my reading, anyway. This is all my reading of this book, because it's a, a, it's a, I don't know how to say this, but it's a, you should read it. Everyone, you should read it. Uh, Lilith, colon, a romance, and sort of come to your own conclusions, because the symbols are not wildly fixed. They can Mm. be very suggestive, but what exactly he's saying is open to some interpretation. Mr. Raven guides the newcomer to his cottage where his wife attends an impossibly large collection of beds arranged in aisles. On these beds, people sleep, but Mr. Vane suspects these people are dead. (laughs) Raven invites him to go ahead and have a nap on the couch, but Vane resists and the Raven tosses him out of his cottage. Vane ends up passing back through the mirror into his own study. A week later, the Raven comes back having decided to look past Vane's previous mistake in the Cottage of the Dead and asks Vane to rejoin him on the other side of the mirror. Rather than go to the cottage, Vane begins to explore this new world. As he wanders, he encounters a strange woman. She is the wicked princess of this land, but he is not aware of it. She was beautiful, 
but with such a pride at once and misery on her countenance that I could hardly believe what yet I saw. Up and down she walked, vainly endeavoring to lay hold of the mist and wrap it around her. The eyes in the beautiful face were dead, and on her left side was a dark spot against which she would now and then press her hand, as if to stifle pain or sickness. Suddenly pressing both hands on her heart, she fell to the ground, and the mist rose from her and melted in the air. I ran to her, but she began to writhe in such torture that I stood aghast. A moment more and her legs, hurrying from her body, sped away like serpents. Then something flew up from her like a bat, and when I looked again she was gone. The ground rose like the sea in a storm. Terror laid hold upon me. I turned to the hills, and I ran. He comes across a group of feral children who are... Yeah, it's pretty badass. This is awesome. Yeah. awesome. He comes across a group of feral children who are oppressed by a group of giants who eat foul food. The children hope the narrator will rescue them from the giants, who are only slightly taller than the narrator. <laughs> for, for they hate every living thing but themselves, not that they are much alive either. The children arrive mysteriously in the woods, but they are not the children of the giants. They are abandoned to their own devices. In fact, the giants come from the children. If a little one doesn't care... He grows up greedy, and then lazy, and then big, and then stupid, and then bad. So if the children are greedy little children, they turn into giants like overnight. Hmm. And then they become <laughs> their own tormentors. Interesting. This formula is interesting and lays out the... <laughs> Savannah says. <laughs> and lays out the path for how spiritual purity or purpose are lost. Greed and laziness lead to physical and mental deterioration. When humans consume in a way that causes consumption to become their greatest and then their sole ambition, they lose interest in all other pursuits, to take pleasure in living and to care for the vulnerable. By contrast, care and vulnerability itself are keys to holding uh, our spiritual youth. So we have to keep ourselves vulnerable. I, this is how I'm reading this. We have to keep ourselves vulnerable and um, keep ourselves in a relationship of care with others in order to avoid becoming greedy self-involved giants who eat mm. foul food <laughs> what is foul food uh you know like mcdonald's okay the children <laughs> maybe i have to bleep that the children tell vain <laughs> well i was just thinking that if it was kids and they're like oh they're eating foul food i'm like does that mean they're like eating broccoli <laughs> yeah, picturing like a domino's pizza the children tell vain I'd rather eat the box. The children tell Vane the story of a wicked princess who hates children and rules a faraway land. Remember that woman we just talked mm -hmm. about? They call her the Catwoman. Oh. Yeah. So an inspiration for Batman as well. Vane is tired of being beaten and threatened by the giants who constantly beat and threaten him. <laughs> and so he sets off to search for this princess, believing that he can help the children by freeing them of their fear of her. He soon meets the Catwoman, who discovers him asleep and watches over him to keep the creatures away who might disturb him. A distinctly non-evil thing to do. Yeah, she unless she wanted to kill him herself. She lives in a cottage <laughs> in the moon and leads him there. The Catwoman, whose name happens to be Mara, never faces Vane the entire time they're together, and he has no idea what her face looks like. She tells him the strange story of a princess in the city of Bulika, who came from Vane's world and taught the people how to mine for opal, then turned on them when they killed a serpent. She gathered all the water of the land in an egg, except that she could only hold half in her lap, and the other half fled underground, leaving the land completely dry. As it turns out, the Catwoman is not the evil princess. 
is not the same person as the princess, in fact, who so terrifies the children. It's this woman who has stolen the water from the land and who wanted the people to mine for opal. Hmm. That's, okay. I mean, you can see where we're going with Lilith, a romance. Yeah. Can you, Savannah? You'll see. It's, that was a lot. Yeah, I'm that a was... I'm a little lost. He, it's almost, MacDonald does this intentionally, I think, because he introduces these characters and then, like, the children are afraid of a woman and she's the Catwoman, but the Catwoman is the princess, but then the Catwoman isn't actually the princess. They're separate people. The children yeah. are just confused. Uh -huh. So we sort of follow these unreliable sources as we work our way toward gotcha. meeting the princess, the Wizard of Oz. You see what Who I mean? Who is Lilith. Who will be Lilith, yeah. Okay. Vane sets off again in search of the princess. Next, he finds a naked woman, cold and emaciated, laying on the ground and tries to revive her with grapes and then his body heat. He's unsuccessful at first, but by bathing her in hot springs, he gradually brings her back to life. Curiously, a white leech visits him in the night and sucks his blood. One morning, the woman, no longer emaciated, suddenly wakes up and tells him she has cast off the leech who has been attacking him, but she is not happy that he has revived her. She theoretically wanted to just be left to die. Oh. She rushes away from him and he pursues her, but she strikes him down, casts off the rough clothing he made for her, and disappears. At the same moment, two leopards flash through the scene and the narrator pursues them. We learn later that the leopards are the Catwoman, Mara, and the princess herself, who was the emaciated woman. Oh. Uh... I want to pause here to make a note of a thing that I'm doing a conference presentation on this book in a, next month. And uh, I think it's significant how naked the Lilith character is. Like, she's frequently naked. Mm -hmm. He also... Even though she's emaciated, he he tries to rescue her with his body heat. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sexual undertones to the Princess Lilith character, particularly for a Victorian audience who are not used to hearing people described as being naked. There's a lot of implied nudity for her. Um, and I think that that's speaking to a, a lost feminine sexuality that mcdonald is trying to hint at that that's what lilith is symbolizing is mm. this sexuality oh that needs to in some sense be revived very directly in the case of Vane bringing her back to life mm -hmm. but then it needs to be redeemed as well we'll get there as it turns out the lady Vane had nursed back to health was the princess and the children had good reason to fear her Vane comes across a woman fleeing the princess's domain in order to save her child. Everybody knows her, says the mother. If the princess hears of a baby, she sends her leopard immediately to suck its blood. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. And then it either dies or grows up an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> no! no! Oh, no, not another idiot! <laughs> There, Can't have that. There is an old prophecy. We really got enough of those. There is an old prophecy <laughs> that a child will be the death of her, which is why she goes after all these children. Oh. So we can feel the Lilith legend increasingly informing the princess of Bulika. In Bulika, where the princess lives, the people are rich because their ancestors dug gems from their cellars, the opal. Nobody works, and they live on the labor of other towns, paying in gems. Since they are the richest and best town, they always expel strangers by nightfall, and there are no accommodations for overnight guests. Hmm. Okay. Vane goes to visit the princess in her castle and grabs a haughty servant and shakes him to get him to request an audience. 
All at once, a radiant form stood in the center of the darkness, flashing a splendor on every side. Over a robe of soft white, her hair streamed in a cataract, black as the marble on which it fell. Her eyes were luminous blackness, her arms and feet like warm ivory. She greeted me with the innocent smile of a girl, and in face, figure, and motion seemed but now to have stepped over the threshold. She's pretty hot. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, that's... I was like, what is the threshold? (laughs) She's pretty hot. For a Victorian writer, this is a pretty attractive description, in my opinion. I agree with that. Yeah. But why, after he nursed the princess back to health, had she cast him off and fled? Because he recognizes her as the woman he saved. She says she wanted to see if he truly loved her, despite her cruelty. (laughs) Her cruelty of... Killing babies? Well, he, he doesn't know that yet. In, in this <laughs> yeah. case, I mean, that's just, that's that's unconfirmed accusations. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Um, allegations. Allegations, yeah. yeah Allegedly. What was, her, what was her cruelty? Well, because she, he he saved her and then she was like, get away from me and ran away. And oh. The next thing he saw was these leopards bounding through the... Um, she says she wanted to see if he truly loved her, right? She offers herself to him for saving her and he notices she is wearing a glove over one hand. The princess keeps a white leopard in a cage, the beast that terrorizes the children of Balika, and one night Vane follows it. The white leopard happens upon a second leopard, the Catwoman, in the process of stealing a child. The confusion over whether the princess or the Catwoman are the child persecutors becomes palpable here, and the white leopard is injured in their confrontation. So is it the Catwoman who was nice to him on the moon but wouldn't let her see his face who's stealing children, or is it the princess Lilith? Following the white leopard back to the palace, Vane watches it transform into the princess, naked again, and she asks him to climb a tree to retrieve a bud for her to heal her wounds. In fact, Mara, the lady in the moon, is trying to save the children from Lilith. Both are able to transform into leopards. There is additional confusion here, though, because Lilith also keeps a leopard, although she's able to transform into a leopard. MacDonald is really messing with us. Like It it gets very heady. Um, So now Vane is climbing this tree to fetch this bud for Lilith. He climbs, but when he gets up the tree, he becomes disoriented, feels as if he is falling and finds himself somehow in the ra- with the raven again. So he climbs oh. up the tree and then falls off the other side. Like if you like dig in- to China kind of thing. Oh. Like into, back into our world? Into the raven's world. Oh. Mr. Raven asks what he's gotten himself into. Vane says he hoped to help the little ones, meaning the little children, who are also known as the lovers, and discovered the great danger facing them, but he did nothing to protect them. The raven says he would have done more to help them if he'd stayed with them. So Vane should have stayed with the kids rather than go off on this adventure. Vane observes that they needed water, but he didn't think to get it for them. Water would have allowed them to grow without becoming giants. So water is also this important uncertain symbol. Uh Mm. The raven says you ought to have given the little ones water. Then they would have soon uh, taught the giants their true position. In the meantime, you could yourself have made the giants cut down two-thirds of their coarse fruit trees to give room to the little delicate ones. You lost your chance with the lovers, Mr. Vane. You speculated about them instead of helping them. That's interesting. I like that. It's a lesson in compassion, yeah. yeah. Rather than thinking about what would be best to help others, we should just take action and do. Mm. A gray cat has followed Vane and the raven and is spying on them, chanting words 
from a secret poem. The raven causes the cat to reveal herself as the spotted, le- spotted leopard, and then the princess, naked again, who the raven says is actually his first wife, Lilith. Oh. oh. So the raven is Adam? Raven is none other than the first man, and his wife, who tends the cottage of the dead, is Eve. Oh. Lilith, he says to the shape-shifting princess, when you came here on the way to your evil will, you little thought into whose hands you were delivering yourself. Mr. Vane, when God created me, not out of nothing, as the unwise say, but out of his own endless glory, he brought me an angelic splendor to be my wife. There she lies. She had one child by Adam, Lilith, that is, a daughter who she now despises. Adam explains she poured out her blood to escape me, fled to the army of the aliens, and soon had to be ensnared and soon had ensnared the heart of the great shadow, meaning Lucifer, that he became her slave, wrought her will, and made her queen of hell. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> when Lilith returns to human form in front of them, Adam observes the wound on her hand, through which he says all of her beauty shall pass if she does not repent. The wound is a reflection of her feelings about her daughter. The birth of children is in her eyes the death of their parents, and every new generation the enemy of the last. Her daughter appears to her an open channel through which her her immortality, which yet she counts self-inherent, is flowing fast away. I do this sometimes, not in the sense of hating my children, but I will occasionally look at my children and think about the fact that their purpose is to outlive me. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, I, I'm just that kind of person, right? Um, I, I'm reminded, like, The Crown did this, I think, or they made a point of this, that Elizabeth II had mixed feelings about Charles because she knew that his function was to be her replacement mm. when she had died. Her mortality yeah. sort of walked the earth in the person of Charles. So this is how Lilith sees her child. Interesting. Not as a continuation, but as a cessation of herself. In our children, we die. A kind of death. That's interesting. I've never felt... Well, I mean, I don't have kids. But um, my little brother is very important to me. And the only thing that I think about with him growing up is that he could turn into an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, he's great. I love him so much. But, like, it's possible one day that they... You, you know you don't get along and that would suck i've never thought about like you're supposed to <laughs> me and shit but i guess it makes more sense with like the crown and stuff like that's a that more example, direct thing yeah then in my like, little house with corinne and every yeah yeah <laughs> they're not gonna like, they're not gonna take your job take over the podcast or, i mean yeah. that's entirely possible i mean they could but <laughs> what a world it would be that's not their purpose in life <laughs> You guys better hope I don't knock over tomorrow. You're going to get a podcast entirely about dinosaurs and orcas. <laughs> uh, and seashells. That'd be kind of cool, though. You, you'll also get a good, healthy episode uh, flipped forever about helicopters. Aww. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. don't forget the lawnmowers. And lawnmowers, right. Um, but that episode we'll call, what noise is that? And uh, <laughs> listeners will have to call in and explain to Everett what the noise is. <laughs> be it a leaf blower, an airplane, or a helicopter. What What's that noise? I don't know. What is that noise? (laughs) We pass hours doing that, friends. I do recommend children to you all, should you be inclined to them. Uh, They're not here to, they are here to replace you. Uh, But I mean, that's the question. 
do you view your children as a continuation of yourself? Like you pour all your love into them that you can so that they can carry it with them into the world? Or do you withhold your love because you're worried that you're depleting yourself through them? Mm. That That's gives dark. me the ick. Yeah. yeah. Well, when Francis, the Pope of the Catholic people, accuses, he, I think he said that people who don't have children are selfish. In some sense, he may be suggesting something like this. It is a lot of work to raise children, mm-hmm. and it's a lot more work to raise them properly. And, and it does, it stresses you out, and it takes a lot of your energy and time. I think Francis is suggesting people who don't have children are, um, in some sense, eschewing that responsibility in some way. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated thing to say, don't get me wrong. Um, but here, I, I guess, maybe is another way of trying to make sense of what McDonald is saying here. Yeah. I don't know. I'm <laughs> yeah, just trying yes. to think. It's a complex question. Yeah, I've never yeah. thought about it It's like a complex that. question. Because like, cause there's kind of this new push where it's like being selfish isn't as bad as people make it out to be. There's a certain amount of selfishness that you should have for yourself like um and i think maybe that's what he's getting at and i think people find it offensive because they're like yeah because i'm caring about myself like there's no one else that will look out for me other than me so like if i can't handle having a kid then fuck you i shouldn't have to have a kid well, you still have to take care of yourself when you have kids yeah, yeah. no and that too yeah, yeah. and that, I, I can barely take care of myself yeah, yeah. if you if you can't Take care of yourself. You can't take um, care of kids. Well, because you're modeling how they're supposed to take care of themselves. So mm-hmm. if you're a wreck and falling apart all exactly. the time. Then, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, and I think that's where it gets turned on its head too. And it's like, well, you are selfish for having children because you're like, you want, you want this perfect little clone of you, but you can't even handle yourself and blah. It's like, but yeah, it is a complicated topic, but. Yeah. Um, I don't think people who have children are necessarily selfless for that choice. No. I think there are people who have children who are wholly incapable of taking care of their children and they have children for the wrong reasons. And Mm. it it bears out pretty well that it was not a good decision for them to do that. So I would rather people go advisedly into that. Anyhow, this is a very philosophical conversation in the middle of Lilith. She's a philosophical person. Apparently, Yeah. Yeah. As it turns out, the leader of the little ones, their oldest member, Lona is Lilith's daughter. So Lilith's daughter is the, like the general of the little, of the children. Of the lost boys. Yeah. She's older though. (laughs) Like she's probably like 18 or 19 as opposed to, yeah, all the other lost boys are, are generally small. They range in age. Okay. Um, sort of like the lost boys. So she's Peter Pan. Uh, Lilith's daughter is Peter Pan. Yeah, I, I guess. Uh, and Lilith uh, was using Vane to find her way to the little ones. Oh. Because these are all the children who have escaped Lilith's wrath. Interesting. The reason they're dropped in the woods is to escape Lilith. Oh. You see? Okay. Unfortunately for her, the raven caught her, and now Vane must go to his wife in his cottage, Eve, that is, to learn how to proceed. In this way, MacDonald explores the Christian existentialist theme of facing the abyss of uncertainty, namely death, in order to discover some deeper secret meaning. So he's got to go to the cottage, the cottage of death. But Vane fails. Uh, oh. <laughs> he fails this test in the first pages of the book when he won't lay down in the cottage among the death, the dead. Uh, and then he fails again when he won't return to the cottage. Lilith becomes the natural extension of this resistance by stealing life in two distinct forms. First, she drains the water from the land she inhabits. Mm. Rather than embrace death, she's literally draining away the life in the earth. Uh, Interesting. 
And second, she drains the blood from the children of that land. Hmm. For MacDonald, Lilith's legendary hatred of children is not about jealousy of Eve, but rather fear of being replaced by the next generation. The act of raising children is a profound act of faith, but only if, unlike Lilith and the people of Balika, we raise them to do more and be more than we are. Lilith staves off death to an unnatural degree to humanity's detriment. When the raven instructs Vane to go back to Eve in the Cottage of the Dead, this is an opportunity for Vane to remedy his initial mistake, but he screws it up again. Mm. Instead, he hops on the horse Adam has gifted him and returns, he gave him a horse, by the way, and (laughs) returns to the little ones. So Adam's like, take this horse and go to my wife in the cottage of the dead and face death and we will deal with Lilith and it will, all will be well. And, he's, and uh, Vane is like, okay, I'm just going to go this way instead. <laughs> I really don't want to lie down next to a corpse. No, I'd rather go hang out with those kids again. Uh, so he runs back to the children. For her part, Lilith escapes the closet where Adam has imprisoned her and slinks back to her throne in Balika. The children have at this point cast out the giants and are living in the treetops in the forest. Lona and Vane plot to take over the city of Balika and depose Lilith. So now we get to the war part of Game of, of uh, not, what am I saying, Game of Thrones, <laughs> of, of Lord of the Rings, right? Okay. Where the orcs and the everybody else go to war. Well, it's interesting, too, that this kind of feels like, um, like a self-fulfilling prophecy also where Lilith is like, I'm going to cast out my daughter because I don't want her to replace me. And then Lilith's daughter is like, I'm, I'm going coming to, repla- to yeah, come I'm in and replace you, you now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at Vane's, right, Vane is the one who's sort of like getting her going. Oh. Yeah, because Vane came back and that's when Vane's like, we're going to go take over the city. Oh. Uh, the little ones are reluctant to leave their home, but Vane informs them that they are the children of mothers in Balika who had to abandon them for fear of the princess and could recover their mothers if they only traveled to do battle with her, Peter Pan. They invade the city and there is a scuffle with some of the residents. One child goes with a woman, taking her for his mother, but she tosses him in a basement and plans to hand him over to the leopardess. Oh. Lona determines that there are no mothers worth having in Balika and they leave the city. The next morning, Lona Jesus. returns with the narrator, he has dark, uh, and a crew of boys to confront Lilith directly. Discovering Lilith, Lona cries out to her mother mother and throws her arms around her, but Lilith is not possessed with any motherly instinct and Vane watches in horror an instant more, and I should have reached them, he says. In that instant, I saw Lona lifted high and dashed upon the marble floor. Oh, the horrible sound of her fall. At my feet, she fell and lay still. The princess sat down with the smile of a demoness. Despite having been desiccated to the state of near corpse yet again, Lilith has managed to destroy her daughter, who bleeds out on the stones and is dead. So Lilith is also like continually just draining out energy. She goes back to corpse state and has to revive herself. Vane carries Lona into the street where he's joined by the crew of little ones riding elephants and horses. They've, yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah. <laughs> They've abducted Lilith and are carrying her bound hand and foot along with them. The narrator decides to take Lilith to Mara who hopes to help her repent. Lilith passes a night with Mara, the Lady of the Moon. And the narrator watches the struggle between them. Lilith fights to maintain her concept of herself as the queen of hell, what she calls her freedom. But she realizes that this freedom is a kind of prison. Her self-determination has separated her from the source of her being. She knew life only to know that it was dead and that in her death lived. It was not merely that life had ceased in her, but that she was consciously a dead thing. She had killed her life and was dead and knew it. So uh, must death, she she must death it 
forever and ever. Her life was death. She had tried her hardest to unmake herself and could not. She was a dead life. She could not cease. She must be. She is life in death. And she finally repents. So what he's saying there is by fearing death to such a degree, death has consumed her. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Her that's... fear of death has become her whole life. Her life is death. Mm-hmm. I think that this is like the moral of the seventh seal as well. Like there are various places where we see this theme pop up. Seeing herself as life and death, Lilith repents. It begins to rain, right? Oh, the water. Okay. And Mara says, uh, the water will call forth the water from the earth, which is hidden away. The princess's repentance has restored some measure of water to the land. Lilith and the children go to Adam's cottage with the sleeping dead. The children choose to sleep among the dead, and Lilith lays down beside her daughter, Lona. Adam promises that even the shadow, Lucifer himself, who has haunted her, must eventually sleep, and that Lilith and the shadow will be the last to awaken in the morning of the universe. The, uh, uh, what am I looking for? Judgment, the apocalypse. Yeah. The return. They'll be the last to wake up? Mm-hmm. When all are, the dead are revived. Oh. At the end of time. Lilith's hand is clasped tight and has been for ages. She cannot sleep until it is open, but she cannot open it, and so she asks Adam to cut it off. He does, and finally she sleeps. Adam gives the narrator Lilith's hand to take into the desert and bury in the sand. Along the way, Vane is tempted by a phantom of Lilith, an army, and a woman begging him to lay down and rest, but he resists these temptations and continues on his mission. He buries the hand and sleeps beside it, waking to discover the ground growing wet in anticipation of the return of a river that will flow through the land and wash away its wickedness. On his way back. Yeah, isn't this cool? It's too... It's never going to be... I hope it's never going to be a movie. It's far too literary to be like a, a functional movie. It's like an army of children fighting this town but the fight is anticlimactic because it turns out to just be a bunch of mean women who want to throw their own children in a basement and feed them to the princess <laughs> you know like it's cool but it's it's yeah on his way back he meets and i think this is why mcdonald doesn't get the same street cred like he doesn't have the pop culture presence that lewis carroll or tolkien have mm-hmm. on his way back vane meets an old woman who eve will not allow into the house of death of an old man sorry I may not be old enough, he says, to desire to die, but I am young enough to desire to live. Therefore, I go now to learn if she will at length take me in. You wish to die because you do not care to live. She will not open her door to you, for no one can die who does not long to live. Vane has learned his lesson about the importance of death. The only way to live is to embrace death as a part of life. This is not the same as the trite observation that the fact of death makes life precious. The fear of death makes life not worth living. That's a different sentiment. Mm -hmm. Embracing death as an opening onto something greater allows a person to live fully here and now. It's almost like Kierkegaardian. I feel like I've brought this up a lot on this show. The good place is literally, that's how the show ends is like, so they finally get to the good place, which is heaven essentially. But everyone there is miserable because they're like, all we do here is have a great time all the time. Like we're like, our minds are literally numb and they're like, they create this extra door 
where it's basically like a essentially a second death and nobody knows what happens when you go through that door but it made everybody all of a sudden happy again and they're like we have a thing like i don't know it just made life worth living yeah essentially knowing that it eventually will end mm-hmm. um i guess it plays a little bit into the like death makes life precious but i think it also fits into the like being afraid of death is like yeah it doesn't allow you to live it ruins, yeah. yeah it drains away your ability to be alive mm-hmm. Vane, having fully accepted this mystery returns to the cottage and adam allows him to sleep beside lona he begins to dream and his dreams deposit him back in his old home exactly where he began he's distraught but after a couple of nights now this is where you think like this is the this is where lewis carroll would be done right Alice comes back home and it's a dream of her cat and the chess pieces and we're finished. But not MacDonald. Vane is distraught, but after a couple of nights, awakens back in the cottage of the dead with Lona. So was he dreaming in his house or was he dreaming in the cottage beside his 18-year-old paramour, Lilith's daughter? Lona is awake now and alive and she and Mr. Vane travel homeward. The land has been revived by the return of the river. An angel guides him to a mountainside and he begins to climb. A hand, warm and strong, laid hold of mine and drew me to a little door with a golden lock. The door opened. The hand let mine go and pushed me gently through. I turned quickly and saw the board of a large book in the act of closing behind me. I stood alone in my library. He sees himself as a character in a book. And closes weird yeah what (laughs) i want to read this book now it's it's pretty badass that's awesome take some patience 1895 vane's uncertainty about the boundary between dream and reality mirrors his uncertainty about the difference between life and death and echoes back to the ancient taoism of chung tzu who wondered if he dreamed a butterfly or was a thing in a butterfly's dream In seeing the book closing on him, Vane realizes the actual truth that he is a character in a novel, which casts him back to his starting place where another reader might see him through the same journey all over again. Mm. Vane asks, can it be that last waking also was in the dream, that I am still in the chamber of death, asleep and dreaming, not yet ripe enough to wake? Or can it be that I did not go to sleep outright and heartily and so have come awake too soon? If that waking was itself but a dream, surely it was a dream of a better waking yet to come, and I have not been the sport of a false vision. Lilith is a dream of Vane's own struggle, just as Vane is a dream of the writer's and the reader's struggle. Right? Mm -hmm. Vane dreams Lilith. She is the queen Mm. of this dreamland. But Vane concludes that his vision of ascending to heaven with Lona was surely a dream of a better waking yet to come. This is Christian existentialism at its best. God offers us a deep hope against the very ontological fragility of reality itself. If Mr. Vane's greatest concern is that his life might be lived in vain, that he is a random accident born on a rock floating arbitrarily in a vast and careless cosmos, only faith in the existence of a greater mystery and a higher truth is necessary to breathe meaning back into his life and ours. Deep stuff. Yeah, that's a yeah. lot of symbolism. Although Lilith is a villain for much of MacDonald's novel, she is a redeemable villain, not pure evil. We do love those redeemable villains. Oh, yes. Right? Especially you, Savannah. Stop it. <laughs> is this a Baldur's Gate thing? No. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, it's literally... Everything. Everything. <laughs> yeah, so Ma- MacDonald offers us a higher evil in the form of the shadow. 
Lucifer. But he says even his devil will eventually achieve absolution. The fact that Lilith can repent and does eventually renders her a sympathetic figure and perhaps the most human in the tale. Adam and Eve have achieved some secret occult knowledge that Vane and the reader are not privy to. Lilith, by contrast, continues to struggle with her imperfections and inconsistencies on the road to redemption. The novel hinges on Lilith's choice to sacrifice the power she has wrested and give herself over to forces she does not understand. The fact that she makes that choice not only redeems MacDonald's specific version of the character, but the larger mythic figure. Whereas earlier legends of Lilith left her a demon torturing humans seemingly without end, MacDonald sees her story through to a conclusion and carves out a significant role for her in the spiritual ascension of humanity writ large. Insofar as Lilith's world is Vane's own inner journey, right? Mm -hmm. Lilith is Vane's malformed and suffering feminine self in need of recovering her divinity, or at least her connection to divinity. This is the Victorian age, the late Victorian age. MacDonald is practically looking back on 100 years and saying, the way we've treated women, the patriarchal structure of our culture— the the weird sex stuff that we got up to in this in this century this has poisoned us this has drained life and water from the land and we need to reconnect with that inner femininity that feminine divine in order to revive ourselves and society and culture you see yeah wow mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean that's how i read it anyway yeah in order to be fully alive, our inner Lilith and our Mr. Vane must make peace with and revive the inner child we've murdered, allowing us to recover our vulnerability and connection to each other. In order for civilization to advance, we need to learn to care for the most vulnerable by sharing our planet's resources with all. Let me take another turn now to Idocratic, whose view of Lilith is not exactly the MacDonald redemption of a character who has sinned as a complete reconceptualization of what Lilith is. Okay. Ida Craddock, who received her own episode on this podcast, offered Lilith a different path to redemption. Rather than embracing the long tradition of Lilith as a child killer and queen of hell, Craddock anticipated Jewish feminists and neo-pagans by arguing that these accusations against Lilith were, in fact, false. Mm -hmm. Follow me here. I feel like this is the Lilith that I know of. Yeah, now we're starting to get yeah. to that direction. But MacDonald certainly opens a door here, I think. Oh, yeah. No, I. it's very interesting what he talks about in that novel. Yeah, and you can see all the hints of Barry and, and uh, Lewis Carroll. And oh, yeah. Even Tolkien a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the Christianity of Tolkien, for sure. Mm. Um. So, uh, what am I saying here? Craddock, who married the spirit of a man she knew uh, before, before he died, believed that it was possible for humans to obtain spirit or angel lovers and that those lovers engaged in physical and spiritual intercourse with living humans. I think you did a voice for this one. Maybe. I don't know. Perhaps. Lilith is the archetype of, about having sex with human, about, uh, with uh, spirit brides, spirit husbands. Yeah, Yeah. I remember that. (laughs) Uh, Citing the tradition that Lilith was a kind of succubus, inspiring men's nocturnal emissions, Craddock says that she should be credited with being the author uh, of Evil Night Dreams shows how prone the partners of spirit brides have been to subjective hallucinations. So she's arguing here that Lilith is in fact a female spirit bride, an angel, Mm. who visits men in their sleep. 
but it, it's the man's misconception of what's happening that leads to legends of the succubus. The man misunderstands what Lilith is doing when she comes to him. We do not find any such wholesale charge brought against spirit husbands of portraying evil dreams as is brought against Lilith. Mm-hmm. The imaginations of men's hearts must indeed have been evil in those days, going back to like the ancient legends of succubi and Lilith, and their brains be clouded, or the difference between a materialized spirit bride and the subjective phantasm of an amorous dream would have been more sharply defined. The psychic who conforms to separate planes of existence has forsaken the path of self-control and clear-headedness and has entered upon a path whose end is insane delusion. So she's basically saying that what's happening here is when a man has the nocturnal emission as the wet dream and sees a vision of a female who comes to him and says that female is a demon. What the man has done is confuse the spirit world for the material world. Because he's having these sexual passionate feelings, he assumes it must be wrong. But Mm. that's happening in a material way, not in a spirit way. Okay. So he's misunderstanding spirit by reading it through the lens of the material experience. The material experience is actually a good and wonderful and beautiful engagement with an angel, but because it's happening and it resulting in sexual pleasure, the man is misunderstanding it. Okay. You see? Yeah. Craddock references the story of Apollonius, a contemporary of Jesus of Nazareth, who attended the wedding of a student. We have mentioned Apollonius on this podcast as well. Apollonius, who was a miracle worker, recognized that his student was not marrying a human woman, but a lamia or succubus. So, like, imagine you invite me to your wedding. And I go to your wedding and because I'm, you know, an occult podcaster and I know my shit, I look at your husband and I'm like, demon, that's a demon right there. I see a demon. I don't say it to you. I'm thinking. Oh, I was about to say, like, I would be like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I picked him because of that. (laughs) Apollonius exposed her to her bridegroom at the wedding and the wedding was nullified. Maybe I should talk to Evangeline. So there you are and your bride. And I'm like. And it's a demon. And you're like, no, it's not. And I'm like, but look. And you're, she's got like snakes coming out of her hair and all this stuff. And you're not Savannah. So you're like, that's terrifying. I don't want to marry that one anymore. <laughs> Savannah's like, I'll take two. Philostratus, who recorded this story, called the student discreet and moderate in his passions before meeting this Lamia. And so Craddock concludes that this so-called demon was in fact an angel, a spirit bride earned by the student's spiritual and philosophical efforts. But in this meeting... This spirit bride thing sounds weird. I don't know this one. It's a spiritual sexual partner. So like the ghost in Ghostbusters? Yeah, like the ghost <laughs> in Ghostbusters. But, see our last episode, But in, see Strange Ride. But in meeting his spirit bride, the student lost control of his situation, and so Apollonius needed to step in to dissolve the union, Craddock says. Here, evidently, the young man is not strong enough to endure the training required to consummate, consummate borderland wedlock. He also evidently does not have his subconsciousness well under control, but allows it to run away with him. So your passions need to be under control. For Craddock, if you are going to engage in intercourse with a non-material angel, with a spirit entity, you need to have your passions under control. Because if they get the better of you in this engagement, then it's not going to work out well for you. Okay. For I Mac- can see that. Yeah, you follow me? So that's basically the thing. So she takes Lilith and says, you guys have been calling her a demon all these years. She's an angel, in fact, and an angelic visitor 
who is engaged, yes, in a kind of sex, but not the kind of sex you people think mm. you're oh. having. It's this elevated sexual yeah. experience. Yeah. One, it's also always it, sex has always been projected on women as a bad thing. Right. Even though, you know. Craddock's revolutionary mm-hmm. and not credited, I think, when, yeah. in the Lilith story, but is important in my opinion. Her and MacDonald are doing some work here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For MacDonald, Lilith has fallen through her obsession with the material and must be redeemed. If we read Lilith as a psychic extension of the narrator, his vain's feminine self uh, is to blame, but also the focal point of the quest for ascension. It needs to be redeemed. We need to focus and give love to our feminine self. For Craddock, it is not the feminine, but the masculine that's screwing the whole thing up. Lilith has not led the man astray. (laughs) Lilith has not led the man astray, but offered him a path to occult knowledge, which he has corrupted through his masculine misunderstanding and so missed the opportunity. In both cases, it's the spiritualization of the feminine that is the key to enlightenment. This was, by the way, a point made by the Rosicrucians centuries earlier, but lost to the Victorians. The musings of MacDonald and Craddock lend greater weight to Lilith's formative moment when she fled Adam because she insisted on being on top during sex. Insofar as they open us to read Lilith as a version of the feminine spirit in us all. The feminine spirit cannot dominate me, but if I refuse to compromise and accept my feminine spirit, it will flee me and do violence to my children. My capacity to be vulnerable, to nurture, and to comfort will be absent or deficient. Think about my children, right? Mm -hmm. When it is required of all humans. Dad can't just be a dick. Mm -hmm. Dad can't just be the disciplinarian. Dad must love and feed and comfort and, you know, hug those children. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of... Like, I I always hug my daughter and, and I hold her close and all these things, but I am even more attentive about the way I touch everett Mm -hmm. because i want him to learn that masculinity is like this what it is to be a man Mm -hmm. is to gently touch and comfort and support i think corinne also needs that like to know that men are supposed to you know i'm not even assuming they're both heterosexual i guess corinne could be gay and she doesn't need a man but that male contact should be like this you know what i mean yeah and if i don't have that capacity in myself if i murder that inner femininity Mm -hmm. then that I do, that's what I mean by do violence to my children. Yeah. Do you think like, um, this is kind of more of today's world, but like that society kind of breaks that down? Say that. Like, what do you like mean? in a way that society kind of pushes that men shouldn't be like that. Cause yes. it could oh, be, yeah. it could be considered weird or creepy or, or all of that. Like I know there was a point and this is personal, but like my dad at one point said he didn't feel like he could hug us because he thought it might be weird because society had pushed that on him. Sure. When that's not the case at all. Here's MacDonald, right? Yeah. Talking about the Victorian age. It still haunts us. I think men are far more haunted by gender roles than women are today. Oh, I agree. Men did not have the 80s and even the 70s like that girl power kind of thing like that revolutionized the way we think about what it what the possibilities available to a woman there are more women in college now than men right but men are still i think in many ways trapped by the masculine paradigm that they're raised i i definitely see that especially because like and then they'll find themselves in well everybody can do this but find themselves in echo chambers that 
reverberate this same like you have to be a man you have to do this and women are beneath us and stuff like that and I think a lot of men nowadays also resent the fact that there hasn't been like a go man movement and um so it but in all the wrong ways no I know no, I mean I'm not saying. I know, I know, I know. I know, I know, I know what you mean. <laughs> but they men do need the go man movement. But for it to mirror what happened with women, it's not to say men can be women can be men too. It's to say men can be women too. Yeah, and yeah. That's and not really what the men in the trees thumping their chests and no. whatever they're doing. Like they're missing the point. They need to let Lilith get on top. Yeah. Lay down. And let her get on top. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I love Lilith so much. <laughs> this is so much cooler than I like had For, imagined it see? would be. See? And it's taken forever. I'm sorry. In our union with Lilith is what I'm trying to say. We must be willing to take many positions to satisfy her, but also to satisfy ourselves. We need to have a satisfying relationship mm-hmm. with that inner feminine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> gender roles are just stupid in general i mean like mm. obviously that's not a hot take but like i just ugh. i think they're i think they're functional savannah because they show us the breadth of our humanity if we can as i'm saying encompass all of them okay my male role and my female role mm-hmm. they become toxic when we say that the female role is not available to me because i'm a man yeah or the male role is not available to me because i'm a female yeah no, I guess that's what I meant by saying yeah. they're stupid is because it's like everybody is different and yet everybody can have these same things. I mean, because like I'm all into all that nerdy shit. And I can't tell you how many times I've been told that you're not allowed to play along because I'm a woman and stuff. And it's yeah. just like, it just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it does suck. It just doesn't make any sense. And it's also like it goes into like nowadays too like with all the like people against the transgender movement it's like who why do you give a fuck what anybody else is doing as long as it's not hurting anybody like it's just annoying why does it matter that i like star wars because i'm a girl like (laughs) oh god i used to get picked on so bad for that but Mm. when you were little yeah when i was little yeah yeah. now people don't really well i mean i don't get picked on for it anymore but the the women who will portray powerful women in star wars movies get picked on for it sure so sure. I, I, yeah it's not a problem that's gone away that's no, for sure no it's a problem that's very much still with us and and i'm not i i'm let's do politics for a hot second i don't think the left is doing any favors by just screaming that we need to just like g- make gender imaginary right oh yeah because it's not imaginary it's absolutely a product of like it's part of the world it's part of the fabric of how we live and i much prefer a universe where we embrace everyone's capacity to embody gender characteristics than a universe where we have to pick and choose and label yeah. ourselves and be this that or the other yeah. thing I, no. I don't even want to say that everyone needs to be non-binary i'm not sure precisely what that means i i think of myself as a very like a gendery person like i love not my masculine gender but i love my feminine characteristics as much as my masculine characteristics yeah no i feel like it's important i think that's because it's not that I don't believe that like gender shouldn't exist at all because there obviously are differences, but it's like it's always a spectrum and people yeah. mm-hmm. look at it so binary that it's just like I it's just, 
I'd almost rather be like, it just doesn't exist than to be like, I see, yes, than I understand. to have to pick a side. I think yeah. we should just like embrace uniqueness in a whole because nobody is the same. Nobody can be put in a box because we're all different at the end of the day. And it shouldn't be fixed either. I want to emphasize mm-hmm. that too. Gender is a spectrum that we can travel and mm-hmm. every day travel differently Mm. today may call on me to embrace more feminine aspect of myself maybe my children need me like if my daughter's sick right Mm -hmm. that's a very different kind of gender today for me if I consider the feminine to be the nurturing and the caring and and that's fine Mm -hmm. it's not a woman thing no it's the feminine aspect of me um so I would I think of myself as traveling the spectrum back and forth as I need to yeah Mm. It's yeah. just being a human, yeah. which yeah. is where it is like, that's where it falls into the like, it doesn't exist it, in a right. sense, it, it is where I can see that argument coming from is that it's just like, we're just humans. Like there is no, uh, but I, I do agree that there is like a feminine, there's differences. There are differences between men and women, but not really. Like there shouldn't be, like there shouldn't yes. be this divide. I, I would, yes, I, I, I guess, like, it troubles me, the conversation, because I don't think the left has a solution to no. the right's feelings about this. Oh, no. The left just makes the right so much angrier, and the things you're talking about, Savannah, that annoy you about Star Wars and, and the video game culture and all that, it, I worry that the left just, like, insisting that all of this is academically true and you know, therefore gender is whatever, it just lights the right on fire and... I would much rather come to, I think if I could go to anyone on any side of the political spectrum and say the words that I'm saying, and they'd say, yeah, of course, Rob, I can, I can embrace some, some feminine aspects of myself. I, I honestly believe that. And if they disagreed, I would point out the ways that they already do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there, that's, that's where we could really, like, we could all just get along if we said, you could be a man, but do be feminine too you Mm -hmm. can be a woman be masculine too and it's all fine in more modern incarnations of the legend whether lilith is a demon or a spiritual icon is largely dependent on the medium and genre in popular fiction lilith has become the mother of vampires most recently in hbo's true blood how about this now we'll do some pop culture nice i love vampires I did like True Blood. The connection between Lilith and vampires is necessarily a modern one, since vampires are relatively modern monsters in folk culture. In 20th century America, Lilith's association with vampires specifically came out of the pages of comics. Oh. Yeah, it wasn't True Blood who came up with this. In 1971, Nicola Cuti and Catherine Jones included the alphabet story in Vampirella number 9. In the comic, the dark-haired beauty is cast out of Eden, where her vanity and arrogance keep... Uh, keep her from loving her companion, Adam. Hey, Neil's still here. Her savage existence caused her to become a prowler of darkness, living off the blood of infants and small animals. When she saw that Eve had replaced her, she swore vengeance on all of mankind. It is she who is responsible for nightmares and for the abductions of innocents who stay in the street after sundown. Lilith, the first vampire... Yeah, I like that guy. Marvel told a similar story three years later in Vampire Tales number four, devoted to Lilith, the first vampire. I'm sure that'll be made into a movie eventually. In Marvel's telling, Lilith's wrath, it won't be. In Marvel's telling, Lilith's wrath comes after the angels slaughter the children she had by Adam. Then in the early 2000s, true Why would they do that? I don't, it was, they're just mean. <laughs> Fuck you, angels. <laughs> 
Then in the early 2000s, True Blood offered their own version of Lilith in season 5 and 6, referring to her as the progenitor created before Adam and Eve as the first vampire. It's a little bit of a, a edit of the story. In the plot, Lilith has been destroyed, but promises to resurrect since a small portion of her blood has been maintained through the generations, and the fact that she's been destroyed does not prevent her naked, blood-covered body from appearing fairly regularly in the series. Hmm. There's a lot of nudity in True Blood. It's, I feel like kind of, it's kind of weird that she's become a vampire, because I'll be honest, I didn't know about her being a vampire. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of knew about her being like this feminist icon who was like, fuck you, Adam. <laughs> well, we're getting there now. That's next. <laughs> Um, let, let's just talk about the vampire real quick. There's consistency between Lilith's role as a mother of child-killing demons and a mother of vampires, but popular culture by no means has the last word on who or what Lilith is. She has uh, also become a significant figure in modern and postmodern occultism. A sigil to Lilith hangs in my office, which was a gift from a listener. Uh, it's currently on our desk right now. I brought it out just for this episode, <laughs> suggesting another of her incarnations as, Savannah's saying, a feminist icon and goddess. Helena Blavatsky played a significant role in reframing the stories of Eden, especially in her secret do- doctrine. Writing after Darwin, Blavatsky accepted that Genesis was a myth, but claimed that it had been badly misinterpreted. In her account of the races of the humans, Blavatsky described a race of Liliths, or Dakini, more like Isaiah here, who were human in appearance, but driven by instinct with no intellect. The semi-divine fourth race of men, giant Atlanteans, took onto themselves wives who were entirely human and fair to look at, but in whom lower, more material, those side real beings had incarnated. Blavatsky notes that these beings were credited with being able to walk on air, and that they were kind to mortals, but were entirely driven by instinct, having no intellect. Later, she elaborates that when the first races incarnated physically on Earth, some of them incarnated fully, others projected into the forms only a spark, while some of the shadows were left over from being filled and perfected. These mindless shadow races committed the first crossbreeding, so to speak, uh, and bred monsters, and it is from the descendants of these that the Atlanteans chose their wives. So that pieces together Blavatsky's lore on the Liliths. The characterization slightly contradicts Blavatsky's earlier comments on the Lilith, who she describes as the mother of apes. The fact that tradition describes Lilith with long wavy hair suggests to Blavatsky that she was a hairy female animal. The Liliths were semi-human, pre-Adamite beings, and so when Lilith mated with Adam, they formed the speechless apes we see today. But the Eves were also animalistic in Blavatsky's formulation and were the mothers of half-animal creatures like satyrs as well as humans. For Blavatsky, there is, so I guess they had hairy legs. For Blavatsky, <laughs> there is a general Lilith or Dakini and a specific Lilith. The general Liliths were the wives of all Atlanteans, but the hairier variants produced the apes, where, uh, and, and the hairier, but, but other variants, uh, like the Eves, produced different creatures through their mating. So there's a couple different ways Blavatsky talks about Lilith. It took me a long time, by the way, to piece together Blavatsky's Lilith lore. <laughs> What's distinct about Blavatsky's characterization of the Genesis story is that Lilith and Eve are blameless for their participation, and Lilith is by no means a demon, nor is she the mother of demons. She's the mother of monkeys. Apes, sorry. <laughs> she, gorillas, who can I'd be scary. I'd much rather be the mother of demons. Gorillas can also be scary. Uh, but they're, oh, the, uh, That is true, though. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> sorry. But they're generally pretty chill if you leave them alone. 
It is at, like spiders or snakes or anything else, mm-hmm. um, if it is Adam or the Atlanteans who sin by mating with these pure animalistic beings. That having been said, Blavatsky does not deify Lilith, nor does she argue for any straightforward equality between Lilith and Adam. So we're not getting to our feminist goddess yet. Rather, she creates what might be perceived as a hierarchy between the male and female partners, with the female being a kind of pure physical creature and the male as a more spiritual entity. Again, Earth Mother, Father God. Mm. Outside of comic books and soapy supernatural television shows, religious meditations on Lilith have tended in Craddock's direction, insofar as Lilith's equality or superior to Adam became a preoccupation of 20th century writers. Her association as a goddess began with the founders of Wicca, Gerald Gardner and Doreen Valiente. Gardner said that a coven priestess might be called Lilith and that Lilith was the name for the goddess personified. In her poem, The Witch's Chant, Valiente equated Lilith with Diana and called her the Queen of Witchdom. Give us some poetry, Neil. Darksome night and shining moon, Hell's dark mistress, heaven's queen, Hearken to the witch's rune, Diana, Lilith, Melusine, Queen of witchdom and of night, Work my will by magic right, Earth and water, air and fire, Conjured by the witch's blade, Move you unto my desire, aid ye as the charm is made, queen of witchdom and of night, work my will by magic right. Yeah, that's good. I felt that. Yeah. Lilith's room. should uh, read it a poetry slam, Neil. There you go, yeah. <laughs> Just credit Doreen Valiente. <laughs> Lilith's revival can also be credited to the Jewish feminist scholar Judith Plasco. In 1972, at the Grailville Conference on Women Exploring Theology, Plasco spent a week with a small group of women working on the intersections of feminist consciousness raising and theology, and then sat down and wrote her own version of the alphabet tale. Plasco said uh, that Lilith had reason to be aggrieved because Adam was not content to be her equal and set about ordering her around. Lilith wouldn't have it and flew away. When Eve arrived, she was more content with her relationship with Adam, but she was disturbed by the excluding closeness of Adam's relationship with God. For his part, God began to wonder if banishing Lilith from the garden and replacing her with Eve hadn't given Adam too much power. Lilith attempted to get back into the garden, but Adam worked to keep her out, enlisting Eve's help by telling her stories about Lilith being an awful demon. Lilith breached the main gate, fought Adam, lost, and slinked away. But this piqued Eve's curiosity. Eve climbed uh, the branch of an apple tree over the wall of the garden and went to meet Lilith. The two became fast friends, and eventually Eve brought Lilith back into the garden. So you see there's like a sister love Mm -hmm. going on here. Plasco's story became an instant and widespread success with feminists who had a variety of interpretations for her new myth. Lilith very clearly was not a demon in her telling, but had only been labeled a demon as a product of male projection. She was only a monster because she wouldn't subjugate herself to a man. Reflecting on her story 20 years later, Plasco argued that Lilith herself was created in much the same way that Plasco refashioned her. She was a product of Midrash, a tradition among Jewish thinkers wherein they came up with stories to make sense of gaps or contradictions in the canonical text. The conflicting accounts of the creation of woman gave birth to Lilith. Plasco then wrote a midrash on a midrash, filling in the gaps in the story the medieval rabbis told about her. After all, remember when we were talking about the legend and the angel says, A million years ago. I'm going to drown you, and she says, (laughs) Well, I will haunt babies. There's gaps there. The gap or contradiction is the claim in the alphabet that Lilith could be born a human, but transformed into a demon, an extremely unlikely turn of events with complex theological implications. For Plaskow, Lilith was a human, but came to be regarded as a demon, a very different state of affairs. 
In the medieval and ancient texts, we only encounter Lilith from Adam's perspective, a male gaze. Her refusal to submit to the masculine is therefore a great sin. But the more submissive and congenial Eve is not a perfect model for woman either, insofar as she is gullible and easily led into error by a talking snake. The masculine should not seek to subjugate and control the feminine, but rather achieve a perfect and harmonious merger, to put a nice button on today's conversation. This is the chance lost to Adam, but offered to us through the refashioned icon of feminine independence, namely Lilith. Queen. Wow. <laughs> that was awesome. I, there you go. That was the story that I've heard, and I, I really like it. The last one. The last one. The Plasco version, yeah. Yeah, because I, I love the idea of Eve also kind of being figuring out you know that like that i don't want to vilify eve either like eve is i've never thought eve was bad Mm -hmm. i mean i know people give her a hard time because they're like oh it's the first sin it's like whatever by people (laughs) you mean the church for two thousand years yes yes (laughs) yeah (laughs) all those witch burnings and everything yeah Yeah, i mean that's pretty shitty yeah i mean they connect back to the fact that eve is more um subject to sin as a woman Mm mm-hmm yeah, I feel like there's, as a woman, a lot of shit gets projected on you a lot. So, mm-hmm. like, hearing that, it just, it felt, I felt something in my soul. <laughs> yeah, it's hard Pretty to cool. miss in that originary legend, Lilith taking, you know, the reins for herself. Take, and then being, being an agent. Being projected as a, a villain for that. Plasco really does a good job, yeah, mm-hmm. of getting into that. As does McDonald to a certain extent. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and Craddock. I never would have expected this. That's cool. Of the Lilith story? Yeah. All of it. All, all, the, of, the, all of the ones. Ins and outs, the nuances. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. But what particularly interested you? I, I liked the, um, like, not closing off the feminine side. That was pretty cool. I didn't expect that from from this, but I think it's really interesting. And also how Lilith is not portrayed as, like, a villain, but as a human and somebody who makes mistakes. I mean, it's almost been a theme of this series. If I go all the way back to my episode with Riley friends, uh, when we started this series on Adam and Eve, which also does seem like eons ago, just the beginning of this episode seems like, <laughs> it does. yeah. Um, but one of the things I said to Riley during that conversation is, well, Christianity is patriarchal after all. Um, and, and it, that's so inherent in the, the Genesis story. I mean, it's a, it just keeps popping up again and again. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I mean, there's a patriarchal quality to Christianity. Where's the mother? Where's the mother goddess? Catholics try to shoehorn in Mary, but she's not in the Trinity. That's what's missing in Western history and in Western culture is the goddess, where the goddess does play such a significant role in Hinduism, for example, or, or um, well, I mean, a variety of religions outside of the Western canon. It's it's the Western religions, it's the Abrahamic religions that focus almost exclusively on the male, the Mohammedan Islam or even Judaism. Um, there's a loss of the centrality of the feminine divine that needs to be recovered. Mm-hmm, yeah. per- perhaps, Savannah, when we're talking about today, we're still seeing the fruits of this mm-hmm. all, you know, 2,000 years later. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though. I've I've heard some some people talk about how the Holy Spirit is the feminine side. You can go there, but we I, don't ever gender it. 
No, yeah. we don't, but I, I think that's pretty cool. Not quite the same as when the Hindus call out to the mother goddess. Way cooler. Kali or, yeah. <laughs> that's right. just something I've heard and thought was interesting. Yeah. Instead of giving a, I don't know, just the more feminine side. Though you could also say Jesus is like feminine in a lot of ways too. I have nothing to contribute to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you got to work is all I'm saying. Oh, for sure. The breasts, sure. the it's vagina, not... the, the whole business is missing there. Yeah. Whether we're talking Holy Spirit or Jesus, you're missing the equipment of the of the female. I'm missing a lot, yeah. And then there's the whole back and forth on the material world and the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And, and which we see more in the conversation about Lilith, I think, than anywhere else. But if we identify the feminine more with the earth and we identify the masculine with spirit, you know, the womb and the engendering organ penis. <laughs> yeah, there's just, yeah. I just don't, I also just don't like the idea of one being the other you know like the women are the is the grounding and then the men is the spiritual like there mm-hmm. needs to be a combination of both mm. i don't like all these people would agree with you yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah mcdonald and craddock yeah they're all saying you can't be one or the other you need to be both womb yeah. and because that's penis. being a human yeah yeah i don't know i agree with that I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. Our sources today included the Jewish Women's Archive and Judith Plasko's The Coming of Lilith essays on feminism, Judaism, and sexual ethics. Wojciech Kosier's A Tale of Two Sisters, The Image of Eve in Early Rabbinic Literature, and its influence on the portrayal of Lilith in the alphabet of Ben Sarah, and Jeffrey Dennis and Avi S. Dennis's Vampires and Witches and Commandos, or they, comic book appropriations of Lilith. And so ends our series <laughs> on the Garden of Eden, friends. Uh, Savannah's laughing because we are all worn out. It is 8 o'clock at night, and we are in the middle of the busiest season of the year for all of us. Uh, and I have to finish writing an episode about Five Nights at Freddy's oh. oh, boy, that's coming for you on Strange Ride. So uh, what I'm trying to say here is we will be back. We will be back in a bit. We're going to take a break from our series. Um, episodes will still be coming to you. We're going to do some interviews. We're going to do some um, a panel discussion on pop culture that Savannah will be involved in. Uh, and then we will be returning with our series on ancient cults, ancient mystery cults. Ooh. Here on a cult confessions.